We're going to go to John chapter 21, and so I encourage you to take a Bible and go to John chapter 21. What we did last week is we started a series on the Holy Spirit with this big idea in mind that for us as Christians, there's this third holiday that we should have, but we often don't. We know Christmas is important, we know Easter is important, but equally as important, at least it should be to us as Christians, is Pentecost. That's when uh, the Holy Spirit, the promise of Jesus to all of his followers, that it was to our advantage that he would go away because if he went away, he would send to us the Holy Spirit that we celebrate that on Pentecost Sunday, which this year, because it always is just sort of 50 plus days after Easter, is going to be Sunday, June 8th. So what we're doing is we're going from the very end of John's gospel and then just, we're just going to keep turning in our Bible into the book of Acts and then we will go through the first eight chapters of Acts. That'll get us to the end of July, but that'll have us... um, while they were celebrating Pentecost on Pentecost Sunday, seeing what happened in that unique moment in Acts chapter two when this promise of Jesus was fulfilled and all of us are the beneficiaries of that. So we're going to John because we're in this in-between period between Easter and Pentecost when Jesus was around and he was with his disciples and he was teaching them things. He was trying to explain now to them what he meant by what he was teaching them before he passed away, but he's also trying to prepare them for what's going to come when the promise is completely fulfilled and he sends the Holy Spirit to all of his followers. So that's what we're looking at. We're in that in-between period between Easter and Pentecost. Jesus is alive. He's with his disciples. He's doing things and teaching them things. This is John chapter 21. We're going to read the first 19 verses. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment and he was stripped for, because uh, he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, "Bring some of the fish that you have just caught." So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. 
He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walked wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And that's where we'll stop for today. So here are the disciples. They've met Jesus a couple of times. What we're reading about is the third time that he reveals himself to them to explain to them who he is and what he's about. But where it starts is they're, they're not in Jerusalem anymore. They're up in the north by the Sea of Galilee. And Peter, on one night, says, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples say, well, I'm going with you. Some people at this point are actually really critical, saying uh, the disciples just miss it. They don't realize what they're supposed to do, and they're going back to their old business. There's no reason to believe that. They've encountered Jesus. He's already taught them some things. Uh, but at the end of the day, they need to eat. And so part of the suggestion is just, I, I, gotta eat. I still got to eat, and so I'm going to go do what he is trained to do, and most, a lot of the disciples were trained to do, which is to be good fishermen. So that's what they go out doing, and they go out doing it through the night. And it, it's actually interesting, Peter just comes across as a very normal guy who likes to fish. And so the weather must be good, he's out, it's nighttime, he's with his friends, and so it says he has very, very minimal clothing on, because he's just happy to have a night fishing with his friends, such that when he sees Jesus, he has to grab his garment and put it on so that he can run to the shore and be a little bit more appropriate than just with his, uh, than he was just with his casual disciples and friends. But he's just doing a very ordinary thing because he's an ordinary person. Jesus, however, in this lesson, is doing something for them very similar to what he did when he called them in the first place to be disciples. You can read this in Luke chapter five. When Jesus initially told Peter to come be his disciple, there was a similar experience. Peter was casting all night, but this time Jesus actually got into the boat with them and said, I know you've been doing this all night, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to put the nets on the other side. And they said, what do you, what do you know about fishing? We're trained fishermen. We've been doing this all night. And so just listen to me, put it on the other side. They put it on the other side. And in that situation, they, there were so many fish in the net that the fish started to break and they needed boats nearby to come and help them. And even with the boats nearby coming to help them, it says that the boats were so just weighed down by the quantity of fish they had that they were struggling to sail. They were sinking a little bit. And then they looked at that and when they finally made it to shore, it says they left it all behind and they followed Christ. Christ brought them into a relationship with them and showed his power to them in Luke chapter five by what he was able to do and know about what was under the water that just completely impressed them. And here they are, they've been fishing all night, haven't caught anything, they don't realize it's Jesus on the shore and Jesus says, go out and try this, cast the net on the right side of the boat. 
We don't get any sense that they disagreed or had questions like they did the first time. They haven't caught anything, so they're still hungry. And so they what's it going to hurt to just go out and do it again? When they do it, they realize it's the Lord. It's got to be that same person. Because you have to imagine this is now very, very early in the morning. So as they're looking at shore, they can't quite see specifically who it is. But somebody's told them something to do. They're willing to try it. They try it and they realize that it's the Lord. And what some commentaries suggest for us is that what Jesus is doing here is he's bringing home the point that he made to all of them in John chapter 15 when he said to them, apart from me, you can do nothing. When Jesus had all of his disciples together in the very last hours of his life, he said to them, apart from me, you can do nothing. And here they are, on their own, fishing at night, and they catch nothing. When they do what Jesus says, they catch an amazing amount of fish. And so he's bringing home this truth to them in this moment. And it's a truth that needs to be brought home to us, and so that's just our first point, that we need to learn in the resurrection of Jesus that it demonstrates and proves everything that he taught. And one of the things that he taught in John 15 was that apart from him, we can do nothing. See, it's one thing just to be open to the possibility that Jesus is alive. And that's the question of the resurrection. If we believe in Easter, that he really rose again, then what we're open to, what we believe, is that Jesus is alive. It's quite another thing to believe what Jesus said, which is that we are dead. It's one thing to believe that Jesus is alive. It's quite another thing to accept Jesus' words when he says, but you aren't. And you need to be made alive. What do you mean you need to be made alive? Well, in the language of Ephesians chapter 2, that all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us, on our own, without Christ making provision for us, are in effect dead. We're hopeless. If we toil and work all night long and do the very best we can in the very skill that we've been trained for, all of that effort yields nothing. And that's what Jesus had told his disciples. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And accepting both of those truths, that Jesus is alive and that I need to be made alive, is what ultimately brings the message of Easter home to us. And that's what the disciples need to get. They've already encountered Jesus. They don't need another lesson in the fact that Jesus is alive. But what he is continually bringing home to them is that they are dependent upon his life. They need him. Apart from him, they can do nothing. And they need to know this because he's about to send them out on a mission. And if they get all excited about this mission that he's sending them on, but think, oh, we know what God's will is, but we can do it in our own power. We can do it in our own strength. Then they're going to fail before they even get started. And that's just one of the fastest ways to mess up everything that we come to hear about the Bible is if we hear and come to know what God's will is, but we start to assume that we can do it in our own strength. We need God's power to obey God's word. We need God's spirit to be able to obey God's will. We cannot 
on our own, in our own strength, do the things that he's going to call us to do. And so we can't simply believe that Jesus is alive. We have to also believe that we need to be made alive because we believe that apart from him, we really can do nothing. And then in that very same passage in John 15, when Jesus tells them that apart from me you can do nothing, he says to them, but anyone who abides in me, that person can ask anything they want of the Father and he will give it to me. So apart from me, you can do nothing, but for anyone who abides in me, there's all kinds of things you can do. And this Jesus demonstrates to them. They, the way Jesus defines abiding me is if those who abide in me are those who do what I say. So in this example, here, here they are, they're just fishing. And to abide in Jesus means when he says, throw the net on the other side of the boat, that's what they do. They throw it on the other side of the boat. And what do you know? They happen to catch a huge amount of fish, so much fish that the net should be breaking but in somehow, some way, the net is not breaking. And if you were one of the disciples and Peter got out of the boat at that moment and said, hey, have fun bringing it in. I'm going to Jesus. What are you? We've been out here all night. We finally catch something and you jump out the very moment. We need as many people as possible to bring in this fish. But Peter's doing what he had done that first time. In realizing that Jesus really is who he said he is, Jesus wants him and all of his disciples to no longer primarily catch fish, but to catch people. That's what he said to them. I'm gonna make you fishers of men. And if you abide in me, if you do the things I tell you and ask you to do, amazing things are gonna happen in your life. Powerful and extraordinary and extravagant things are gonna happen before your very eyes that you're gonna say, this is so much, the, the, the net has to break. There's no way we can continue doing this. But God's going to provide you the strength that you need to catch the people that he's sending you to catch if you abide in me. And abide in me means obedience. And this is another time where some of us make the mistake of thinking that all we have to do is, in our minds, believe in Jesus, but we don't have to do anything for Jesus. And that's a division that we make, but it's not a division the Bible makes. Believing in him means we will do the things he says. So that if they were on the boat and, and he said, okay, now cast the net on the other side, we totally believe that would work. But we're just gonna come in for the day. Wait a minute, no, no, no. If you believed that that could work, you'd do it. You'd throw it on the other side. If, if you don't and you think he's just wasting your time, then you'll come into the shore. But if you believe him, you'll do what he's asking you to do. You'll cast the net on the other side. And it's the same thing as he's about to give them this mission to go into the world and do all kinds of things for him. To believe in him is to be willing to do the things that he tells you to do. It's not believing in themselves, it's believing in him. They're abiding in him. He's the one who had the idea, throw it on the other side. He's the one who's making sure the net's not breaking as they bring it in. So it's his power, it's his strength. So it's not, oh, if we do these things, we're somehow gonna earn God's favor and we're gonna, no, 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 no. I'm giving you free of charge the advice. Here it is, do this and watch amazing and extravagant, beautiful things happen 
that will completely shock you. And so when they finally get to shore, Jesus already has a fire going. He's already cooking them breakfast. And he invites them to come and to eat with him. And then at some point as this meal is finishing up, he has a very specific conversation with Peter, who's excited, so excited he jumped out of the boat to come and meet him. But he knows that Peter is dealing with something specific. And so he, he pinpoints a question to him and says, Peter, Simon, son of Gent, do you love me? He says, you know I love you. And three times Jesus asks him this question because it was only a few weeks earlier when Peter was asked a question three times and his answer was, no, I don't know him. And then someone said, no, 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 you know him. Don't you know him? No, 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 I don't know him. You, you're from Galilee. You know him. You're one of his followers. And Peter said, no. And so now Jesus asks him three times and gets Peter to now confess his love for him just as many times as he had denied him. And Jesus is just so masterful at this because Jesus knows what basically the strategy of our enemy is for us. Satan always has to be schizophrenic about sin. And this is what I mean. Satan has to first try to make sin look so attractive that we want to do it. He shows it, it at, to us in such a way that we feel like we're missing out if we don't do it. So he has to make it look good, make it look attractive, make it look beautiful so that we'll do it. But then the moment we do it, he has to try to make us feel so disgusted by it and ashamed by it that we just don't think we, God would ever want us now. So on the one hand, he has to try to make it look good so that we do it. And then he tries to make us feel so guilty about it that we're so ashamed that we don't even think we could ever be forgiven for it. So the way I heard someone put it recently for a, a person who's struggling because of their life circumstances or their worldview or whatever it is, and they're actually contemplating the decision of having an abortion, the way Satan works is that he's pro-choice on the way in and he's pro-life on the way out. That's how Satan works. He persuades you in one way to do something and then the moment it's happened, He's now spending all of his energy persuading you God could never forgive you. God could never love you. God could never have any use for you because you did this thing. And Jesus is the opposite of that. For Jesus, no sin is small. No sin is safe. And, and he, the way he encourages all of his disciples and all who follow him, he, sa- he, he warns us about every possible sin because sin ultimately separates us from God. So there's no sin that Jesus takes lightly. But then when we do sin, there is no sin so serious or significant that Jesus would say to us, don't repent. I just don't even want you anymore. You just can't even be on my team anymore. Because Jesus knows the fundamental issue with sin is the separation that it brings to us from God. So Satan first tries to separate us by getting us to sin, and then he tries to keep us separated by making us feel incredibly guilty about that sin. What Jesus does is he tries to keep us from it so that we don't do it and we don't experience that separation, but when we do do it, there he is saying, come back to me. Don't stay separated from me. You can repent from this. You can be forgiven of this. Come back to me. Don't let Satan have a double victory 
in this situation, but come back to me. And there's Peter. He knows he's guilty. For Thomas, the chapter before, he had all kinds of doubts. For Peter, he has all kinds of regrets. And Jesus is saying to him, with all of your regrets, come back to me. And there's Peter saying, but, but I denied you. And there's Jesus saying, but I died for you. But you don't understand. I denied you. Yeah, I don't think you get it. But I died for you. But I was the one who denied you. Yes, that's why I died for you. And you need to believe that my dying for you is more consequential and more significant than your denying me. And there's so many people here when just Satan tells them, if, if you were just to stop and write down the list of things you've done in your life that you regret, he just takes all of those things and he says, see, you could never be a Christian. You should never even think about coming to a church on Sunday. You should never hang out with those people. If they knew what you did, they'd want nothing to do with you. That's what he does. And there's Jesus saying, if you only confess what you've done, if you only be open and honest about what you've done, if you only repent from what you've done, you can experience wholeness and health and love again and friendship and fellowship in ways that you never dreamed possible because I died to make that happen. And everything you think of in your list of reasons why you're not good enough to be a Christian is the very, are the very things that Jesus died for so that you and I could become Christians. He can take all of our regrets and not only forgive us, but actually restore us. And if Peter's going to abide in Christ and obey him, this is what Peter is going to have to do. You see, there, there's a way that he could just feel so overwhelmed with regret and guilt that he would say, well, if you forgive me, then I'm just happy to be on the team. But Jesus doesn't want to stop there. He want, Jesus wants Peter to be a leader in the church. And so when Jesus says, do you love me? Jesus' response is, well, then feed my lambs. Not just accept my forgiveness, but I want you to tell this gospel, share this news with other people. I want to use you, Peter. I actually want you to be in leadership in the church. Tell, what do you, I can't be a leader in the church. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Yeah, and it's when you get that, when you really get that and understand that you don't deserve to be a leader in the church is when precisely you'll be an effective leader in the church. Because then you know it won't be all about you. It'll be all about me. And you'll point people to me and not yourself. Because Jesus doesn't, he doesn't mix his words. He makes sure Peter knows that they're never Peter's sheep. They're never Peter's lambs. He says, I want you to do this and I'm gonna use you, but these are my sheep. These are my lambs. And so just like I'm the person who's allowed to forgive you, I'm the person who's allowed to call you into this service to take care of these people. And no one can revoke my decisions. I'm at the top, there's no one above me. There's no committee meeting that's going to happen afterwards to say, is this really the best thing we should do? I'm the one who died. And I want this message to go forth to as many people as possible. And Peter, I'm going to use you to catch as many fish as possible 
you're going to go and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to come into the family and you're going to see extraordinary and amazing and beautiful things and I'm going to do it through you because I love you. And my purpose for you is not just to forgive you but to restore you into my service to do all of these things. And then he makes clear to him, you're going to see all this happen in your lifetime, Peter, but then you're going to go the way I did. Well, what do you mean? You remember how in my life I did a bunch of amazing, extraordinary, beautiful, and awesome things and the crowds were coming from every tribe, tongue, and nation? Yeah, do you remember how it ended for me, Peter? Yeah, you died on a cross. Peter, that's gonna happen to you too. You're gonna proclaim the message in my kingdom, completely restored and forgiven, and you're gonna see miracles happen before your eyes where you will bring healing to other people, but you yourself will not be healed there will come a point where your life will end in a similar fashion to mine. He says this to him. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. It's kind of like a a proverb that we're like, what does that mean? Well, we get in verse 19. The Gospel of John tells us what it means. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Peter, you're going to be used by me. This kingdom's gonna explode. The nets are gonna almost break. Amazing things are gonna happen. But for you, in your life, at the end of it, you're gonna suffer a similar fate as I did. And then he says to him at the very end these powerful words. Now, if this can sink in, that Peter really knows that apart from him, he can do nothing. But if he abides in him, he can do anything. Now he can actually follow him. Now he can actually follow Jesus. And it's amazing because it had only been a few chapters earlier where uh, Simon was saying, I want to follow you. If you just go backwards to chapter 13, this is where we'll wrap it up. Chapter 13, verse 36, this is on page 900. This will help us get the full force of what it means in chapter 21 when Jesus says, follow me. Jesus has just explained on the night before he was going to die that he was going to be betrayed. And here Simon Peter, verse 36, said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So here, right before Christ would go to the cross, Peter is saying, I'll follow you, I'll follow you, I'll follow you. And Jesus said, no, you won't, no, you can't, no, you won't. But here at the end of Chapter 21 and verse 19, Jesus looks at him and says, now that you see what I've done, that I have died, that I have risen again, now that you know that apart from me you can do nothing, but if you abide in me you can do anything, even when I tell you what the end is going to be, by what kind of death that you're going to glorify me, now, Peter, I can say to you, follow me. And he does. 
And that's what we'll continue to read about as we turn to the book of Acts and see the ways in which, through the Holy Spirit, Peter begins to follow him. But Christ makes it possible to follow him. Christ gives us the power that we need to obey his will because we can't do it any other way. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit to us. This is the advantage that you and I have, that you and I who are dead in our trespasses and sin and couldn't do anything that he wanted us to do, if these truths come home to us and we embrace them and we give our lives to them, we can and we should follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how great your love is, for how compassionate you are, how in every memory we have tells us we're not good enough and we're not strong enough, that you can come to us and show us yourself and how great and beautiful and awesome you are to meet all of our needs. I just pray that as a church, you would help us to be open to all that you want to teach us through your word, that we could get excited about the hope that we have through your spirit to follow after you and to experience life in all the fullness that you created it for. So I just pray now that as you see into our hearts from all the different places we come and all the different battles we're facing, that you would take and apply this truth as medicine to our souls, that you would help us to reject the lies that other people tell us and to commit completely to the truth as you reveal it. In your son's name we pray, amen.